Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew uh, chapter 13, where we're going to be this morning. In just a few weeks, we're going to jump back into our study in Romans. We spent 27 weeks, 28 weeks in the book of Romans, and in a couple of weeks, we'll get back into it uh, with uh, chapter 10, which is really rich material, so can't wait for that. But since it is the beginning of the, the new year, and uh, you know we're, we're looking at ministries and you know how we do what we do, we're, we're going to take a three-week three break and look at a vision series, Vision uh, 2024, we're calling it. And I don't know if you've ever asked the question, I mean, maybe you're here every week, you're here every Sunday without fail, except for when you're on vacation or sick, but have you ever asked why do we do this? You know, why do we gather? What is the purpose of the church? What are we supposed to be doing as a group of believers? Uh, when God saved me as a preteen, he had just brought my mom and sister to saving faith and then brought me into a place where I recognized my own sinfulness and I cried out to uh, Jesus for, for uh, salvation. And then, of course, you, when you're new to the faith and you've never been in church, we'd never been in church we went from never having been in church to in church three or four times a week at least. And when you're new to the Christian faith, you don't know what to look for in a church or where to go, but God was very kind to us and providentially led us to a church right in the heart of downtown Dayton, right in the middle of the city that had very strong preaching. So biblical, text-driven, Christ-centered, expositional preaching, um, and we, we ate it up, and the, the church was filled every Sunday. It was a beautiful huge building that took up what seemed to be half a block. It had stained glass windows and it just a, a sort of an ancient looking building. I'll, I'll show you a picture uh, you can see uh, behind me. Now that, that's from the late 70s, early 80s. It doesn't really give it justice because of the angle, but just a massive church building. And they had a pastor who was there for 35 years, the Reverend Niall Fisher, who was a terrific preacher. And the pews were filled every week with people who were there eager to hear from him. Well, after 35 years, he retired and moved to Tacoma, Washington, and that was very, very difficult for the church. In fact, you know, the, the people who followed him really struggled. The church went through three senior pastors in about 10 years because nobody could measure up to, to Pastor Fisher, at least that's you know, what, what people said. And so it was a very difficult transition. Well, at one point, after a number of people had left the church and people were frustrated, people were saying they weren't being fed and no one could compare the previous pastor, the deacons got together. Now, this church was, was deacon-led, which was part of the problem, frankly, but the deacons got together and they said, okay, we've got to revisit what are we even all about as a church? I mean, what are we supposed to be doing as a church? What is the mission of the church. And so they huddled together for really half a day and they said, we got to get back to the basics. What's the mission? Well, someone said to make a difference in our community. Another person chimed in and said, uh, to be a good neighbor to those around us. Someone else offered to serve the least of these. Another person chimed in and said, uh, to protect the sacredness of human life. Another person said to preach sound doctrine. This went on and on. A lot of people mentioned uh, very noble things, but they could not agree on why the church exists. What's the purpose of the church? In fact, they never did agree, never agreed on that. And that church no longer exists. 2019, they shut their doors. There's a 
Of course, the building is still there, right in the heart of the city of Dayton, but the church no longer exists. It's critically important, I think, that we as a church, at least occasionally, if not regularly, reflect on our mission as a church in order to make sure that it is, in fact, a biblical mission and that we're doing ministries, the things we're doing fit with our mission because there are a lot of good things we could be doing. And all those answers that the the deacons shouted out, I mean, those are all noble things. Those are good things. Those are things that should concern us as Christians, but they don't represent the mission of the church. And if we don't pay attention, if we don't regularly reevaluate why we do what we do, we can easily be distracted by what's called mission creep. And those of you who are in the business world, you, you know what this means. It happens when an organization moves beyond its original goals. There are many noble things that we want to do and are doing as a church. We want to protect the sacredness of human life. We want to help the homeless. We want to rescue abused children. We want to assist abortion-vulnerable women. We want to educate the illiterate. We we, we want to be a good neighbor in our community. These These are all good things, but again, none of these really represents the mission of the church. Everything can't be the mission, or nothing is the mission of the church. Well, kind of like the deacons that, of this church that I grew up in, in 2019, we gathered as elders, and we spent almost a year, probably, maybe it was a year, actually looking at, wrestling with, praying, discussing, what is the mission of the church? And so we searched the scriptures, and we prayed together, and we talked through it, and, and we went back and forth over a series of months in, in elder meetings. And ultimately, after a year of careful study, prayer, and discussion, we realized from the New Testament that the church actually has a singular mission, and that is for God's glory, it is to make disciples of Jesus who make other disciples of Jesus. That's why we exist, to make disciples of Jesus. But of course, that begs a question, doesn't it? What is a disciple? And how is one made? If we're going to be about making disciples, we, we need to know okay, what exactly are we trying to make. Uh, Any mission statement for a Christian church must have at the heart making and multiplying disciples of Jesus. That's really the only mission that the New Testament allows for the church. But again, what is a disciple? Now, someone might say a disciple is someone who tries to live like Jesus. But there are a lot of people who try to live like Jesus, but they're not trusting in Jesus for salvation. Someone might say, well, a disciple is someone who believes in Jesus. Well, Yes, but there are people who believe in Jesus who have not embraced him as Savior and Lord. In fact, the New Testament makes it clear that even the demons believe in Jesus. And no one would say that the demons are disciples of Jesus, of course. So another person might say, well, it's somebody who uh, wants to serve their neighbor. And okay, that's good, um, but those don't really indicate what a true disciple is. So over our, again, during our year-long process, we saw that there are some 30-plus characteristics that a true disciple is said to embody in the Gospels alone, 30 things. For example, a disciple knows Jesus, loves Jesus, follows Jesus, learns from Jesus, obeys Jesus, trusts in Jesus, worship Jesus, Uh, abides in Jesus. Those those are just a few. 
But of course, what we realize is when we say, what is a disciple? or What are we trying to make? We don't want to say a disciple is someone who does these 30 things. So we try to boil it down. What exactly is the essence of this? What exactly is the New Testament getting at? And what we concluded as we looked at all of those attributes of a disciple is that the distinguishing mark of all true disciples seems to be this. They treasure Jesus. They treasure Jesus. And in such a way that they're united to him and his body, the church, they're being changed into his image. They're telling other people about Jesus. So after all that time, here's what we concluded as a group of elders is our mission as a church. For God's glory, we exist to treasure Jesus, to become like him together, and to share his gospel. Because that's really what we believe is the essence of being a disciple of Jesus. So what I want to do over the next, we'll do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to break that mission statement down into three parts. We're going to look at what it means to treasure Jesus, what it means to become like him together. That'll be next week. And then in two weeks, what does it mean to share his gospel? Um, And today I want to do that by looking at a a very short uh, but powerful couple of parables. And in doing so, I want to answer three questions. What does it mean to treasure Jesus? I mean, that's very important. What does it mean to treasure Jesus? How do we learn to treasure him? So let's say, yeah, I really want to treasure Jesus. And all the things you said that represent treasuring Jesus, I want to do all those things, but I don't know how. And then finally, maybe most importantly, why should we treasure him? So what does it mean to treasure Jesus? How do we learn to treasure him? And why should we treasure him? So Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 44 through 46. Here reads the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So in the first parable, uh, now the parables were the stories that Jesus told and he would rope people in with themes that they were aware of, seeds and weeds and kings and kingdoms and rulers and so on. And, and as I'll talk about in just a few minutes, he would often then kind of flip the script on them and ca- confound them with an ending they never expected. And so here he tells a story about this guy who's walking along in a field and he kind of stumbles upon a treasure. Now, when I say that, don't think of like um, a, bo- a wooden box with a lid that opens up that's filled with treasures, you know, like you see in a Lucky Charms commercial. This is more like a gem, like a, 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 a jewel of great value. And so you might think, well, I mean, why would there be a gem buried in a field? Like what an odd thing. Well, it actually wasn't that unusual. In fact, it was very common in the ancient world to bury uh, treasures because there weren't, you know, of course, banks on every corner and robbery, you know, was high, especially in the rural areas. And so if you wanted to keep something from being stolen, you buried it in the ground and then you paid very, very close attention to where you had buried it. If you've ever been in our church office, um, particularly the, the pastor's offices, uh, you know that the walls are really thin. Uh, you can hear everything that, that goes on. So even though my office is down the hall from pastors Adam and Chris, uh, I hear every time Adam sneezes, 
Um, and he is a loud sneezer. But, um, and I hear whenever Chris is singing, and he is a loud singer. Um, so I hear all of that stuff. And so if I've got to take a phone call that's confidential, you know, that, that I don't want everybody in the office to hear, if somebody is, if it's a counseling situation or shepherding situation, for example, what I will tend to do is I will go and I'll walk around the, the campus, walk around the parking lot, and I'll take that call. In fact, I was doing that the other day, and one of our church members almost ran me over. Um, but I was, I was out walking around, and, and I'm talking on the phone, and then I get to the edge of the parking lot. I guess it would be in that direction, and I noticed on the ground a $100 bill. I'm like, this is incredible. So I went up, and I, I went to pick it up, and I noticed there was another $100 bill, two of them. And I go, and I pick them up, and as I pick them up, I see out of the corner of my eye another $100 bill. I thought, we are going out tonight. This is, this is exciting stuff. And so I pick up these $100 bills, and I thought, okay, they feel kind of weird, though. And so I look at them, and, and I, the texture was kind of odd. And, and then I noticed that instead of the president in the center, there was a rapper, uh, like Lil Wayne or somebody, you know. So I thought, well, this is obviously not real, so we're not going out. But um, uh, I knew it wasn't, a real, uh, wasn't real, but I was fooled for a minute. I thought, this is something... Uh, this is amazing. This is something of great value. Well, the man in the parable, he comes across something incredibly valuable, and he's so convinced that he goes and he sells everything that he has to buy the field that contains the treasure. In the second parable, which is a parallel parable, we're told that a merchant finds a pearl of great value. Now, he doesn't trip over something in a field, but it's still a surprising discovery of tremendous value. Well, what exactly was it that these guys found? What was the treasure? What do these treasures refer to, we might say? The, the parables, there was a period of about a thousand years, um, really from the, I guess, maybe the late 900s to uh, probably, you know, the, the 20th century, where the parables were reviewed as, they were looked at, interpreted allegorically, meaning every little detail was mo meant uh, to refer to something very specific. So, the river was the blood, the sky was, uh, you know, Jesus, and something else was the cross, and the rock was the devil, and the dirt. But then, you know, through more faithful interpretation, we understand they're really trying to communicate typically one single point. And what are we getting at here? Well, both these parables begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, a bunch of parables begin that way. They're, they're, they're called the parables of the kingdom, you know, for that reason. And they're showing us not just what life is like in the kingdom, but what the king of the kingdom is like. See, you can't have a kingdom without a king. So when Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 13 to his disciples, he's actually talking about how valuable he is. One biblical scholar writes, it does not say Jesus is the treasure, but as Jesus and the writers of the New Testament unfold the meaning of the kingdom, it becomes plain that the value of the kingdom derives from the value of Christ himself, the king, and is inseparable from him. When we enter the kingdom, whose reign do we enter? He goes on. When we receive the kingdom, what is the gift we're receiving? Well, it's, is it not Christ himself? When Jesus proclaims the kingdom to be, the kingdom to be at hand among you, Who's standing there in their presence? Of course, Christ himself. When Jesus says that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, right? It's in his person that the kingdom has arrived. 
The disciples are meant to understand that Jesus himself is the treasure that these men, uh, that brings these men so much joy and prompts them to sell everything in order to gain it. So here's our first point as it means to, what does it mean to treasure Jesus? To treasure Jesus is to delight in him as the one of all surpassing worth and the only hope for salvation. I mentioned all of those things at the start of the sermon, all those things that a disciple is said to do. And again, there are 30, especially when you look at the, the Greek words, there are 30 plus of them. Worship, obey, follow, learn from, trust, and so on. Well, all of those things necessarily flow out of delighting in Jesus. At least that's the only way that a person is going to obey uh, Jesus out of love is as they learn to delight in Jesus. The true disciple delights in Jesus. That's what it means to treasure something. It means to be enamored by it, to find joy in it, to value it, to find satisfaction in it. A person can claim to do all kinds of things for Jesus or even be a Jesus follower. A person may say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower. They can even try to live like Jesus, try to embody the teachings of Jesus. But the real evidence is in the delighting, which then leads to, of course, actions born out of love. In the case of the men in these parables, it led to radical actions. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. There is an emotional and a volitional aspect to this. There's feeling, that's the emotional aspect, and there's doing, that's the volitional aspect. To treasure Jesus certainly is to love him, to have our affection stirred by him when we think of him. When we worship him, this is a divinely enabled reality. Now, the classic illustration of this is, I mean, there are a lot of good ones, but what came to my mind in the preparation of this was the illustration by Jonathan Edwards, one of the pioneers of the First Great Awakening, 18th century. Edwards talked about a man who loved honey. I was just fascinated with the texture, the consistency, the color the way that it flowed, the way that it was produced, and so on. He just loved all of that, um, but he never tasted it. He just loved everything about it, but, but he never tasted it. Again, he, he appreciated the texture, the purity, uh, all the, the things that made it the ingredient that it is. He was a true student of honey, but he never tasted it. And then there's the man, Edward says, who appreciates the texture and the purity and the ingredient, and works hard to learn more about that. But this is the man who loves the taste of honey. Edwards would say, if you don't know the taste of honey, you you don't really know honey. In the same way, if you've not found yourself satisfied with Jesus, having tasted his goodness and mercy and love and grace and been brought to a deep love at the soul level, you can outline all the attributes of Jesus you want. And maybe you are a Christological scholar. You know all kinds of things about Jesus. But you don't really know Jesus if you've not tasted his goodness, his love, his mercy. If you don't know him in that way. One of the most heartbreaking conversations that I ever have, they're they're conversations with folks who tell me about their adult kids um, who made a profession of faith, you know, at one point and parent may say, I was there. Like, I, I was there when, the, when he trusted in Jesus, when he made the profession of faith. But then they go on to say, but, say to me, but he, you know, he wants nothing to do with Jesus now or the church now. Um, he says, I, the person may say, well, I was there when, when, 
when she walked forward, and I was there when she, she made a profession of faith, but she has nothing to do, wants nothing to do with God. And as I mentioned at the outset of this message, that there are plenty of people who claim to know Jesus. And I can't, of course, I don't ever, when I have these conversations with parents, I don't ever pretend to know the spiritual status of their child. Uh, but one thing I can say is we can say we made a profession and, and we can go to church and we can try to be obedient and upright citizens and, and so on. But if we don't love Jesus, if we don't delight in Jesus, if we don't find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus, then, I mean, that's really a dangerous place to be spiritually. People can say all kinds of things, but the real question is, do you really treasure Jesus? I mean, are you delighting in Jesus? Now, the second part of my point was to, to say that to treasure Jesus is to recognize him as our only hope for salvation. You might say, well, how did you get that from this parable? And that's really the beauty of the parables is they, they don't answer every question. They leave some to the imagination. They actually sometimes spark more questions than they answer, create more tension than they resolve. Well, I can't help but think that the reason that these two men sold everything is because, at least in part, they saw in the treasure a hope for a new life, the promise of maybe a new future. And that's what we have in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, yes, but also we have the hope for a new future, a new life that begins right now. It's a life that we can never earn, a life we can never gain by our own goodness, our own merit. It's simply ours by believing, again, which translates at least in some level to delighting in Jesus. Well, how can we move on to the second part? How can we learn to treasure Jesus? Um, notice in verse 44 what happens when the man stumbles across the hidden treasure in the field. It says, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The phrase, in his joy, is critical. I mean, the whole parable turns on that phrase. Joy is what motivates him to sell everything he has. Joy is the engine, we might say, that drives him to sacrifice. It is because of his joy in what he has discovered that he doesn't even consider selling everything he has to be that great of a sacrifice. What is it that moves people to live obedient lives for Jesus? What is it that moves people to give sacrifice, the sacrifice of their time, the sacrifice of their money, the sacrifice of their resources? What is it that compels someone to make a hard decision, an obedient decision, when it will ultimately cost them dearly? What is it that has over the centuries actually fueled the entire Christian missionary enterprise? It is the joy of discovering Jesus, the one in whom the Apostle Paul says are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we're going to make disciples as a church, which, again, that's the heart of our mission, that is, if we're going to be a people who treasure Jesus, we have to realize that it will only be as people see the glory of Jesus, the beauty and the mercy of Jesus in the gospel, that they will be motivated to obey God's commands, the law, or tell anyone else about Jesus, do evangelism. So our sermons, songs, symbols, and sacraments or ordinances emphasize what God has done for us in Christ, not ultimately or primarily what we're called to do for him. Now, we talk about those things, yeah, 
we, we talk about what God calls us to do. Of course we do. But only in light of what God has done for us in Christ. I love my favorite commentary in Matthew is probably by a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. It's a masterpiece in my estimation. He says this on this particular parable. His comment is, it is not by telling people to sacrifice that they make sacrifices. It is not first by preaching God's law that people do God's law. It is first by telling people of God's treasures in Christ that people sell what is necessary for the costly but joyous acquisition. What we need first are Jesus stories where we hear news before orders, joy before sacrifice, discovery before decisions, gospel before law. One of the challenges of every church in North America and in other parts of the world as well, but mostly in North America, is getting people to serve, right? And so getting people to work in the nursery and serve in children's ministries and serve as greeters and serve as deacons. And, and you know, it's, 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 a very, it's a challenge that every church faces, wherever you are. How do we get people to serve? And then, of course, you know, related to that is how do we get people to give so that ministries can continue, so that missions can go about? How do we get people to make sacrifices? And, of course, the, the immediate reaction to that or, you know, the, the instant inclination, what I might even call the universal temptation, is to browbeat people, to guilt people, to exhort them to more to do more, serve more, give more, pray more, obey more, etc. But those are all forms of law. And without the gospel, the law only kills. That's what Paul says. That's what Jesus alludes to, even the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't motivate or compel, even if we dress it up with Christian language or we lace it with warning. So here in this parable, no one tells the farmer or the merchant to do anything. Realizing the value of the treasure is their motivation. As a late German scholar, Joachim Jeremias explains, the decisive thing in the twin parable is not what the men give up, but the reason for doing so. The overwhelming experience of the splendor of their discovery. It is the discovery of Jesus, the joy of who he is and who we are to him and what we have in him that compels us to do anything. So how do we learn to treasure Jesus? I've already alluded to it. Here's our second point. We treasure Jesus by celebrating through songs, sermons, sacraments, its ordinances, and ministries the good news of who he is and what he has done. That's why you notice we, we pay very careful attention. Pastor Chris doesn't just throw the songs together haphazardly or, or recklessly or, you know, it, it's all meant to accentuate the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus. And of course, to accent, you know, the proclamation of God's word. So we want everything we do. We want our ministries at the lowest level. Roberta, Miss Roberta, who works with our nursery, does such a great job. She said, no, I don't want people to think, parents to think we're just babysitters here. We want even our babies to be enamored with Jesus. To know that, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is amazing. So we want everything we do to accentuate the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. Now, well, what about personally? Where, where's the personal application? Several years ago, I was part of the um, ordination council, the examination committee for the EFCA West. So 
Evangelical Free Church of America in the Western region. And so I would meet with guys, you know, they're, they're part of us in that council, we would meet with aspiring pastors who were seeking ordination, and we would, you know, kind of grill them and, and, you know, for four hours on theology and doctrine and polity and so on. And we would take a break, you know, you, you know what, four hours of this nonstop. So we, we took a break one time, and I, there was a guy who was also part of the, the examination committee, he was in his early 70s, had been in pastoral ministry for, I don't know, almost 40 plus years. And we kind of both ended up, you know, during this break around the water cooler together. And I don't know why he said this to me, but maybe he was just venting or maybe somebody, I was somebody that he thought he could trust. But he said, you know, I, I just, 40 plus years and I hear almost every Sunday, all the time, pastor, give me something to do. Just tell me what I need to do. And, you know, I've heard that myself many, many times. And so, you know, with sort of a wide-eyed, uh, you know, eagerness, I said to him, what do you tell those people? What, what do you say to them? He said, I tell them, take in the story of God's salvation until you see the glory of Jesus and the love of the Father. Read the Bible until you see the glory Gather with, God, gather with God's people until you see the glory of Jesus. Talk with your friends until you see the glory of Jesus and the love of the Father. I said, and then I was much younger then, I said, that's all you tell them? He said, that's all I tell them. Take it in till you see the glory of Jesus. Are you caught in sin this morning? Take in the story until you see the glory of Jesus and the love of the Father. Take in the story through corporate worship, through Christian friends, by being in a small group, by participating in the ministries of the church, by celebrating the Lord's table with God's people, by spending time in prayer, meditating on the scriptures, reading other authors. Are you discouraged in your faith this morning? Some guy said to me last week, I was just asking him about the new year. He said, 2024 has already been terrible for me. I I grieved uh, with him as he said it to me. Are you discouraged in your faith? Read the Bible and pray until you see the glory of Jesus and the love of the Father. I was pastoring this church in California when I was part of that ordination uh, committee and examination committee. We had this young couple that started attending our church and they both looked like they were supermodels. They looked like they could have been in any magazine. Um, and I'd never seen them before. And Travis and Ashley were their names. And they still listen, I think, sometimes. So um, there's a shout-out to them. But they, they came up to me at the end of one service after two or three weeks. And I said, hey, nice to meet you. you know, where are you from? They said, we're from right here. And, you know, kind of what, what brought you here? And, and Ashley said, she goes, you know, we've been out of church for a long time. Uh, And we really didn't want to go back, frankly. She said, because every time we went to church, we just felt like all we got was just guilt riddled into trying to do more. And it was all, every week was just about all the things we're not doing that we should be, and all the things we should be doing that we're not. And she said, and then, you know, we started hearing about the grace of God and the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. And like, we want to come back. We want to hear more. We want to hear more about who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's, 
you know, th that's how we treasure Jesus by celebrating this, those things. Okay, finally, why should we treasure Jesus, right? This is, as I said, maybe the most important thing. Well, it's implied in this parable, but it's actually spelled out more clearly in something Jesus said before he told these parables. Uh, scan back up to verses 33 and 34 of uh, Matthew 13. Um, this is Jesus. He told them another parable, or Matthew telling us about Jesus. He told them another parable. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not where I want to be. Um, let's see, where am I? I put the wrong, uh, I put the wrong verses on there. Now I'm not going to know. I'm not going to be able to tell you why we should treasure Jesus. Um, oh, no, here we go. Okay, uh, verse, uh, verse 10, yeah, of Matthew 13. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And this is not going to be on the screen. I got the wrong passage. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, uh, he talks about the fulfilling of the prophecy and so on. Um, and then uh, he, he says, he talks about the, the value of the parables is that in the parables, the secret things are revealed to those who have ears to hear. Um, the man in the, the field found a treasure that had been hidden. Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke in parables to, re to reveal what had been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, what was that? Well, he's talking about something not attainable by human wisdom. He's talking about God's salvation. He's, he's talking about the gospel. Matthew's saying that all these parables, these stories that Jesus told, are meant to point to God's salvation in Christ, which is a mystery that can never actually be figured out by human wisdom. If you've ever, again, taken note of the parables of Jesus, the people who leave after hearing a parable, sometimes they leave angry, sometimes confused. Sometimes they're outraged. Well, one reason that the endings are so shocking is because the gospel they highlight is shocking. The Apostle Paul calls the gospel folly, foolishness to the so-called wise. Well, why is the message the cross folly? Because it, it is the announcement that salvation is for the undeserving. Forgiveness is ours freely by faith. It doesn't have to be earned. It can't be earned. It can only be received. But there's more to this mystery than that. The greatest mystery, the most shocking part of the story, is actually the hero of the story himself, Jesus. He is God, but he humbled himself to become the suffering servant. The God-man gave his life for people who despised him. When he was lied about and betrayed, he didn't defend himself. When he was beaten and scoffed at and ridiculed, he prayed for his enemies. He loved those who hated him. He washed the feet of those who would trample on him, figuratively speaking. This is God we're talking about. So the most confounding thing about the parables is the king of the kingdom to whom they point. So what is it that makes the parables so mysterious? And what is the secret that's been hidden for so long that's revealed? It's really the, it answers the why question. Why treasure Jesus? Here's why. We treasure Jesus because of the excellency of his person. It's a Jonathan Edwards term. The completeness of his saving work. 
and the love that he first showed us. There's a, there's a new TV documentary series came out maybe three months ago called Let Us Pray, P-R-E-Y, and it details the rise of fundamentalism in the mid-20th century. Fundamentalism started in earnest in the 1920s. And fundamentalism, maybe you're thinking, wait a second, I'm a fundamentalist. Well, fundamentalism used to mean 1920s, 30s, 50s, really even until the 60s, it used to mean somebody who, who was for and defended the fundamentals of the faith. You know, virgin birth, deity of Christ, the visible return of Christ, and so on, inerrancy of Scripture. So a fundamentalist used to mean, you know, I, I, I hold to the fundamentals of the faith. But then over time, late 60s, 70s, with the fundamentalist movement, it began to morph into something which really meant what I would call a form of Christianity, and I'm using that, I use that somewhat loosely, that focused heavily on doing rather than being. And so really what fundamentalism did is it boiled Christianity down to doing all of these rules, and many of the rules are man-made rules, keeping all the rules. And there were and are many consequences to fundamentalism, but I think the one that's, and, and much has been documented in this, this, this documentary, which is actually, it's horrific and terrifying and very disturbing, um, but one of the consequences of fundamentalism that I think has been overlooked, and I've never seen much written on it, is it impacted, drastically impacted how we view Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. The focus and what we appreciate about Jesus via the fundamentalists became strictly on the fact that he lived for us and died for us. Ultimately, what he has done for us, and we praise God for what he's done for us, but in stark departure from the reformers and the Puritans and the leaders of the first and second great awakenings, very little attention then was given to the person of Jesus. Again, what Jonathan Edwards calls the excellency of his person. So why do we treasure Jesus? Yes, because of the completeness of his saving work. Yes, because of what he's done. That's part of my third point. But first and foremost, we treasure Jesus because of who he is. He is the lover of our soul. He is love. He loves us with a love like no one else. So that when we sin, when we rebel against him, he doesn't turn away from us. He doesn't leave us. He moves closer to us. Every aspect of his character is beautiful and perfect and holy. His thoughts are always pure. His motives are always good. He doesn't judge the way that we do. He's not spiteful. He's not passive aggressive. He doesn't harbor bitterness he has never, ever wronged anyone. Janine and I had the chance, and I'll wrap up with this, last Sunday to drive up to Quincy, Illinois, where our oldest son was preaching. And, um, you know, it's a, about a nine-hour drive, and so we drove up on Saturday. We were there at church when he, when he preached, our son preached. And, um, and it was just so encouraging, you know, as a parent, as a Christian, <laughs> You know, I don't know if you, if you, if you, if your kids ever do something that you've done a lot of for years, even it's hard not to be an evaluator, you know, but what I found is for the first maybe 10 or 12 minutes, I was in evaluation mode. Um, 
And then I found myself just receiving the gospel. And it was so nourishing to me. It was so, so good. In fact, my son told me that after the service, uh, the second service, we were there for the first, another pastor came up to him and he, he was on vacation. He was from Chicago and he was in Quincy. He was on vacation. And this pastor made a beeline up to my son after he was done. He said, he said man, that, that was exactly what I needed to hear. He said, could you come and preach that sermon every week at my church for the next year, the same sermon? It was so nourishing. It was so encouraging. But one of the points that, that my son made that I really loved, he said, he said, you can't hide from Jesus, but that's okay. He knows everything about you. He knows every secret thought, every perverse longing, every sinful action, but he loves you anyway. He knows everything about us. You can't hide from him, but he loves us anyway. And in Christ, we actually experience the fullness of what it means to be known and loved. He is fiercely loving, never weak, never powerless. He's not boring. There's a richness and a fullness to his personality that is completely unique and stunning. And there's a devotion to us that moved him, that compelled him to die on a cross. But death couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead for our justification. We're prayerfully striving as a church to make disciples who make other disciples. And what we've determined from the scripture, the disciple is someone who treasures Jesus, becomes like him together, and shares his gospel. And so we want, before we do anything else, before we talk about becoming like him together, that's next week, before we talk about sharing his gospel, absolutely essential, that's two weeks from today, we want to just spend, we just wanted to spend a few moments today talking about what it means to treasure Jesus. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our allegiance. He's worth losing everything else in the world for because he alone is satisfying. Let's pray.